It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com Hi, I'm Bobby, and I'm your friend who knows just a little bit too much about pop culture. Welcome to your weekly meeting of Pop Culture Fanatics Anonymous. I have a question. Well, I always have a question, but this week, my question to y'all is how do we define the pop culture impact of something or how big something's pop culture footprint is, like a movie or a TV show, a song, or even a person? Is it by how much money it made at the box office, its Nielsen ratings, where it charted on the Billboard Top 100, how many DVDs it sold, or is it something more intangible, like how quotable it is, or how memorable the characters are? The impact of something in pop culture is often very difficult to measure, simply because we all interact with pieces of media in very different ways. Even think about community to community, how musical artists may be massive within one demographic, but completely unknown to another. No matter the metric, we all know the few pieces of media that have stood the test of time and those that have burned brightly but quickly. And this week, we're going to unpack just how we know that. So if that sounds good to you, let's get started. So this is a pretty broad topic, and we'd be here forever if I tried to investigate the pop culture impact of every single major piece of media. So we're going to split it up into different cases or questions of how we determine pop culture impact. So our first case is the Avatar case. And no, not Avatar the Last Airbender. I mean, the big, tall, blue people Avatar. Avatar is not, adjusted for inflation, the highest grossing movie of all time, raking in a lifetime gross of $2.9 billion. We're set to get a sequel to Avatar, which is almost 10 plus years in the making at this point. And in anticipation for that, there has been a mass re-release of Avatar in IMAX. And so this has caused many a think piece to begin popping up like daisies, um, arguing that Avatar is actually super underrated and we don't, you know, appreciate it enough and it's actually pretty good when we think about it. And I found it such a strange dichotomy that there was this massive, like, discussions that you would save for maybe an indie cult classic or a blockbuster that just didn't do super well in its initial theatrical run. Um, you know, like the underdog story. It's hard to 
here, this underdog story narrative being placed on a movie that made, once again, $2.9 billion at the box office. I just think it's so, that's so strange to me. It was just so odd seeing all these different, um, you know, discussions and, and think pieces arguing that that avatar is actually super pop culturally impactful when in actuality it's really not um i would say that avatar's pop culture impact is what could be considered hollow right it burned brightly like the year that the first avatar movie came out it was everywhere but a lot of the impact of the film was contained to the year that it came out and beyond that there wasn't a ton of discussion about it not to say that it just fell completely out of obscurity obviously not i mean it's got a sequel that's coming out in a month or two it has a whole land at disney's animal kingdom and like it 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 is around but it wouldn't i wouldn't say that it's one of those films that's on the level of even James Cameron's other works like Titanic. It is kind of just like I said, this culturally hollow property. And I kind of, I mused about this on, on Twitter. And I basically said that I wouldn't say that Avatar has no pop culture impact, but rather that the impact is hollow. It's pop culture footprint is contained to just, and I quote, tall blue people. Now, this isn't to say that it lacks in quality because it doesn't. However, it lacks the cultural pervasiveness of even James Cameron's previous works like Titanic. Its pop culture footprint was massive, but really only contained to the year that it was released. When you think about movies that crack the billion dollar box office club, I think Avatar is amongst the most forgettable, which is a weird dichotomy. We are seeing a similar problem this year with the success of Top Gun Maverick. It surpassed Black Panther in the highest grossing movies ever race, yet it only holds about one fourth of its pop culture imprint. And I am saying this as a Top Gun fan. Again, this isn't a mark against the quality of the film, but rather it's lack to truly stick as a franchise or property that people care a lot about. And being candid, I think the campaign to get people to really care about Avatar is odd, especially when the cultural insensitivities of it are right there. Like, it's not really hard to see why people might not be fans. That was what I said about Avatar. And all of that, I think, rings true. Avatar is, you know, I have a, a good and bad list here. And my one good is that it is technically stunning and was visually appealing. One thing about James Cameron is that he similar to Tom Cruise, uh, he will go balls to the wall. And that is the second time that I've used that phrase within a podcast this season. But it's true. He he is willing to go the extra mile beyond the extra mile to have these really just bombastic and grand uh, showings of whatever it is that he's, um, whatever movie that he's trying to make, which is fine. But that also ends up with the stories that he tells being kind of hollow and somewhat forgettable. When I think about the, you know, like when it comes to memorable characters or memorable lines or, you know, even like memorable plot points, Avatar is not working its way into that list of movies that that have any of those things. 
it, like I said, it's very culturally questionable. There have been a lot of indigenous um, communities that have expressed that the the narrative of it was a bit weird and kind of culturally appropriative. Um, it has a very fleeting story. I think it 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 wants to be more than it actually is. And it has really forgettable characters. And that's crazy because it has really great actors like Sigourney Weaver and Zoe Saldana. Like, it's insane that this film is just so forgettable in so many different ways. I think if it wasn't as visually appealing or engaging as it was, I don't think this would be a movie that people would hold up as being super pop culturally relevant. And to anyone who may be thinking, well, you know, like, well, look at it. it. It was so beautiful and the technology was so cutting edge and everything. True. But with how fast technology moves within the film industry, the technology used to create Avatar became obsolete probably within eh, five years of it being released. So it's not even that impactful anymore. At the time it was, yes. And it definitely kind of helped to propel the usage, the usage of uh, motion capture technology, which is, if you don't know, um, motion capture or mocap is what was used to create the, the beings in Avatar, the Navi. Um, so basically what they do is they have actors come in and they're wearing these like, um, skin tight suits and they put motion sensors all over their body. So the actors are actually acting out their scenes and their lines and saying them. And then they have animators and VFX artists come in and basically map what the characters are looking like over the actors that are playing them. It's just like a, a way to capture a more authentic uh, look and feel of the characters to really meld the actor with the character, especially if they're these kind of otherworldly beings. And you can definitely see that. Um, I've watched many of behind the scenes of Avatar and you can see where certain, you know, facial expressions of the character works its way into or facial expressions of the actor works its way into the character. And you can kind of see glimpses of the actor and like how they look uh, physically work its way into the character. This is something that has been done in um, traditional animation for a very long time. If you watch any like making of or behind the, the scenes of any major um, animated film, especially 2D animated film, they'll say that the animators always try to work in uh, the actual like kind of physical likeness of whoever is playing them into the character and you can get glimpses of that. So this is that concept turned up to an 11. All right. Animation lesson of the day concluded. But it definitely propelled those types of technologies. But I was talking with someone kind of about this, this topic, and we came down to the conclusion that a film being visually appealing is kind of just the first tier of, of what it is to be considered like a good film. Like, I, I don't think that it's necessarily we should be clapping out a fish for swimming uh, with a film being nice to look at. You know what I mean? Um, and Avatar definitely goes beyond that. It is, this is no knock to any of the VFX workers or any of the animators on it. It is stunning to look at. But that is kind of the 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 first rung on the ladder of working your way up to a really good film. And the point in all of this is that Avatar is just not that. And I think there's a lot of 
movies that are in that top 10 highest grossing box office list that have the similar problem. Like I mentioned, uh, Top Gun Maverick is having that, that similar issue. Like it is surpassed Black Panther, but I don't think that we are going to be talking about Top Gun Maverick for years and years and years to come, especially not in the way we talk about the original Top Gun. And like I said, this is no knock to the quality of the film, but it just shows that it's just not all that full of a narrative. And you kind of need both. You need a film that is both visually stunning and you also need great characters and really good writing and a really good story that just grabs people. So that's one to grow on with the Avatar case. So this is the top 10 highest grossing films of all time, um, not adjusted for inflation. So at number one, we have Avatar coming in at 2.9 billion. Number two, we have Avengers Endgame coming in at 2.7 billion. Number three, Titanic coming in at 2.2. Number four, Star Wars Episode Seven: The Force Awakens coming in at right at $2 billion. Number five, Avengers Infinity War right at $2 billion. Number six, Spider-Man No Way Home at $1.9 billion. Number seven, Jurassic World at $1.6 billion. Number eight, The Lion King, the live action remake at $1.6 billion. Number nine, The Avengers at $1.5 billion. And number 10, Furious 7 at $1.5 billion. Now, as I was going through that list, even, you know, as I was saying it, I had my own standouts of like, oh yes, this is pop culturally impactful versus eh, not really pop culturally impactful. Avatar, eh. Endgame, mm, kind of in the middle. Titanic, absolutely pop culturally impactful. It was everywhere. And I think for a long time, it was the highest, like it was the highest selling uh, VHS for a very long time. Um Star Wars The Force Awakens, I think within the nerd fandom community, yes. Outside of that, I'm not sure. Infinity War, same thing with Endgame. No Way Home, I think it exists in kind of a weird in-between because it combines the all of these Spider-Men that we know uh, together, but it's also a very kind of, you know, MCU nerd fandom heavy film. So, and also it is one of the if not the newest release on on this list. So we're not even at a year of it having been released. Um, and it's already the number six highest grossing film of all time. So what does that tell you? Um, Jurassic World, I would say not super pop culturally impactful or pop culturally impactful, but in a negative way. Trust me, we will get there. Uh, the Lion King, not very pop culturally impactful. The Avengers, I would say, yeah, super pop culturally impactful. And Furious 7, once again, is kind of in its own. It's not in the nerd fandom in that it's a, a Marvel or DC property, but it's in the kind of um, what I like to call dad cinematic universe, which is films that your dad really likes. So like The Godfather, the Fast and Furious films, Top Gun, movies like that. Like that is, it's, 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 it's pretty massive within that realm but Furious 7 specifically I don't know if it's super pop culturally impactful um versus the just massive pop cultural impact of of the Fast and Furious films Mother's Day is almost here and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around a watch she can wear every day from movement 
Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style. All for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. So this leads us into, even within a franchise, how can we define pop culture impact or what does that look like? And so our two test subjects for this are going to be Jurassic Park and Jurassic World. Now, it was recently um, Colin Trevorrow, who has kind of been the kind of creative spearhead of the Jurassic World franchise recently came out and said in an interview, quote, the previous five films are plots about dinosaurs. This one, Jurassic World Dominion, is a story about characters in a world in which they coexist with dinosaurs. For the franchise to be able to move forward because it's inherently unfranchisable, there probably should have only been one Jurassic Park. But if we're going to do it, how can I allow them to tell stories in a world in which dinosaurs exist as opposed to here's another reason why we're going to an island? We'll unpack that in a second because um, I think that is very, very interesting. But Trevorrow goes on and explains that he also is planning on making more Jurassic World movies. Um, and he wasn't aware that Jurassic World Dominion was thought to be kind of the the end, the kaput of Jurassic World so he says, quote, I never knew that this was going to be the end of the franchise until I saw the marketing. Those guys are brilliant at what they do. But for me, I think it might have been clearer if they said the end of an era as opposed to all of it. Because regardless of the cynical approach, of course, they're going to want to make more money, which is what Jurassic World was about. A new dinosaur fan is born every day. Kids deserve these movies, and young filmmakers grow up on the, these stories, much like Peter Pan and The Wizard of Oz, and worlds we've returned to constantly. End quote. I think that quote in and of itself is could be its own episode, honestly. But the the crux of what we're what we're talking about here is Trevorrow's point on that Jurassic Park, which was the original film. Uh, is inherently unfranchisable. And so what does that mean exactly? Um, it's unfranchisable because it is, number one, a well-contained story. It's got great characters. It's got a very memorable score. It's kind of got everything you need in one go. And I think this is another way that we can define pop culture impact, which is how well-contained is, is the story? Yes, pop culture impact can be defined by, you know, the ability to make a thousand and one films from one original IP or intellectual property. But Pop Culture Impact can also be defined by just like a film that does a really good job on the first go um, and doesn't need to have this massive continuation. Another film that I, that came to mind with this is uh, E.T. 
the extraterrestrial. There was talk of having an E.T. sequel, which was supposed to be a lot scarier than the original, which is a story for another day, but it was supposed to have a sequel. But then uh, director Steven Spielberg and Melissa Matheson, who was a screenwriter, they just couldn't kind of come to a story that made sense. Yes, money-wise, could they have done it and figured something out? Sure. Because at one point, E.T. was the highest grossing film of all time. So the demand for it would have definitely been there. But the decision to end the movie and kind of keep the world contained within itself shows that it had a massive footprint within pop culture and still does to this day. So between Jurassic Park and Jurassic World, the issue of pop culture impact comes in that one is a pretty well-contained story, be it it is, you know, it originates from a book, but it's a very well-contained story. We get the setup of should we be able to coexist with dinosaurs? And the conclusion is no, we shouldn't. And we answer that question, I think, pretty quickly. Um, so we don't need to then revisit it five more times. Like, I think the point has been made. And Trevorrow, you know, to his credit, he's right. Like, you can revisit, like, Jurassic Park or the world created of Jurassic Park can be a world that we revisit However, Jurassic Park is such a like quintessential cornerstone of film that it is not really like a world that we want to keep revisiting because the crux of that world was what happens if we coexist with dinosaurs? And the first film answers, uh, we shouldn't do that, actually. We shouldn't try to, you know, mass manufacture dinosaurs because life will uh, find a way, and it did five times apparently and also like we can't we just get the point like the first film we got it don't we don't need to be fraternizing with dinosaurs we need to be separate and that is okay so the issue that's the kind of the issue with wanting to return to that world within jurassic world where the first Jurassic World movie is like we did it we we made the the theme park and it's going fine um until it doesn't like what 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 happened in the first Jurassic Park film. So the pop culture impact of Jurassic Park almost kind of shut out a need for a franchise. And it shows that pop culture impact doesn't have to be how many things can come from one property, but just off the merit of that one property alone, how impactful is it? And this is kind of a similar case with um, with Avatar in that it's also visually stunning and incredibly engaging. When I saw Jurassic World Dominion in theaters this past summer, they did a double feature with Jurassic Park and Jurassic World Dominion. And seeing Jurassic Park, that was the first time I had seen it on the big screen because obviously I wasn't around in 1993. Um but that was my first time seeing it in a theater. And I was in awe of just how well that movie still holds up to this day. It holds up pretty well visually. Um, and, you know, I've gone into many times why Jurassic Park holds up visually. It's a mixture of CGI and practical effects, which I think is like the the magic sauce, the just piece de resistance of uh a film and that's what makes film timeless but that's another thing um but it still is such a visually engaging film to look at 
And technically Jurassic World is too, but where they begin to differ as far as pop culture impact is once again, it leads back to the story and the uh, the characters and the, even the motivations. And I think sometimes the pop culture impact of something can be diminished or cut down if the public doesn't see a need for it. Yes, Jurassic World made a lot of money. It was on that top like highest grossing movies list. But it I think a lot of people walked away disappointed because the it didn't have the characters that we loved, nor did it give us really a a warm and fuzzy feeling that we would get new characters that we loved. Um and the story again just felt like a kind of reworked Jurassic Park. Now, this isn't to say that Jurassic World or any of the films that followed it were all bad. I do think Jurassic World Dominion was a film that wanted to be Jurassic Park really bad and it just didn't it didn't quite hit that mark. But Jurassic World, for all intents and purposes, definitely did explore a different side of this universe, which is you know, maybe we can coexist with dinosaurs and maybe we can find some commonality with them, the bridge between man and dinosaur, you know, whatever. But I think it just was something that audiences didn't really want. And that does have a very big role in how culturally impactful it is. I think they really tried, especially within the marketing, they tried to make Owen and Claire and Blue, these characters that we really stuck with, but they don't have the same impact as, you know, Alan Grant, Ian Malcolm, Ellie Sattler, like, you know, they they don't have that same oomph, that same gusto. That coupled with uh, Jurassic Park had already had two sequels that kind of asked additional questions of what happens when we coexist with dinosaurs. So by that time, uh, we, the question had been, had been answered. We got it. We, I think we get the gist. So I think that's an interesting kind of, you know, point of how do we measure impact with, with, even within a franchise. And it almost always totals out to the, the first thing that comes from the franchise being one of the most culturally impactful. Now I will say one instance where the sequel to something was more, I would say, maybe culturally impactful or just at the same level of cultural impact is actually Shrek. Um, The first two Shrek movies kind of run neck and neck as being super pop culturally relevant. Even to this day, I think Shrek 2 came out in 2004 and then the original Shrek came out in 2001. So one of those movies is 20 years old and still is as fresh within our pop culture zeitgeist as it was when it came out. And the second movie somehow managed to build upon that just because it's a really good movie, but managed to build upon that and have all the quotables and all the like really impactful moments and the funny moments and everything. So not to say that every franchise that, you know, has the original story and then there are films that follow it. Those films are not capable of having pop culture impact, but instead that it does again, boil down to how good is this thing? You know, how does it function within the the universe of the thing? Shrek 2 built upon the universe of Shrek 1 by expanding it and going to far, far, like the kingdom of far, far away. Whereas Jurassic World 
technically did build upon the universe of Jurassic Park, but took it in a direction that still was kind of circling back to where we were with Jurassic Park, which could then just have people thinking, well, I'm just going to watch Jurassic Park. I don't need to watch Jurassic World. Like, I got it. So that brings us to our, our last point which is we've talked about films that are, you know, have have raked across the box office, made buku amounts of money, um, crazy, crazy, crazy dollar bills attached to those films. And so our final case is more the cult classic case or kind of just films that don't have or did not make a ton of money or things that did not make a ton of money initially. How do those pieces of pop culture that don't have maybe the numbers find their way into the pop culture lexicon? I think music is probably a really good example of this. And music is often kind of hard because there are songs that are universally loved, but then there are songs that are super massive, like I said, um, but some communities just flat out may not have ever heard of them. Um, and you know, vice versa. So I think there are a couple different metrics that we can consider here as far as, you know, how do smaller properties attain a pop culture footprint? The first one is the so bad it's good metric, which can be applied to, you know, like the room or, and I don't, I, I want to preface this because I don't want people taking my, my words out of context, but I'm going to say a band and I want you to know that I love this band. They are, they're good and I like many of their songs. But I do think the So Bad It's Good metric can apply to Limp Biscuit. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. I, I'm down for the Nikki, for Roland, you know, Chocolate Starfish and Hot Dog Water. I'm all there. But they do fall into that that metric. They were considered butt rock. Okay. Um, so if you know what butt rock is, AKA new metal, you know what the public consciousness of it was, of it was at the time. So I don't want to hear it. I am not a, a Limp Biscuit hater, but as a pop culture enthusiast, I have to be honest here <laughs> and they do fall in that category. But yeah, this, the so bad it's good metric really is just boils down to exactly what it is. It's so bad it's good. And for that, it attains, it kind of shoots into the stratosphere of our public consciousness. And I think it just comes from the fact that people are like, I can't believe this thing got made. Like, I can't believe, you know, this was made for, for somebody. And I think a lot of cult classics benefit off of that, um, especially because many cult classics tend to find themselves... Um, dealing with very niche subject matter. Think about like the B horror sci-fi films of like the 60s, like very cool classic, very, you know, niche in their in their focus, but have ascended into the stratosphere of, of pop culture impact because of that. Like not all of them are the so bad it's good metric, but a lot of them are, you know, I think the kind of um, while we love seeing things that look very perfect and very buttoned up, um, a la, you know, avatars and everything like that, I think we also like seeing things with a bit of a frayed edge. There, it, it takes a lot that goes into creating anything on a massive scale, a film, a TV show, an album, whatever. But we kind of like seeing those frayed edges, the things that kind of get lost on the cutting room floor, you know, like it kind of 
brings us back to the fact that this is still like these are still humans making this thing. And I don't know, I think some of us like seeing human error baked into things. So I think that's that's how the the, the so bad it's good metric sends things that are probably eh, not that great into a different realm of, of pop culture impact that some things that may be, you know, super buttoned up and well done, but were kind of forgettable may get left behind. Another metric that is, you know, season specific, but it is very, very crucial and how pop culturally impactful something is, which is the Halloween costume metric. Um, there are just some things that will never go away as far as Halloween costumes go. You can always count on someone dressing as Zach Galifianakis's character from The Hangover, even how many years later, you know what I mean? You can always count on there being at least one to two Marty McFly's or Doc Brown's, depending. Um, you can always count on someone whipping out their Catholic school, you know, uniform, putting some pigtails in and saying I'm Britney Spears from Baby One More Time. Like there are just certain, <laughs> there are certain, you know, moments in pop culture that will always be a Halloween costume and therefore they will always be remembered and, you know, just constantly celebrated. Um, I know I'm forgetting some as far as just like Halloween costumes that we see all the time. You're always going to see a Spider-Man you're always going to see some type of superhero. You're always going to see a Kim Possible. That's one super popular. Mainly Shigo is what <laughs> you're going to see. Like you're always going to see these pop culture figures show up. And I think Halloween is a great time to celebrate that. And that is a perfect time to kind of measure the pop culture impact or something. Like even this year, I'm thinking about like, what are we going to see kind of in droves for for Halloween like in past years it was like one year where I think everybody that I knew was Harley Quinn and Joker from Suicide Squad like that movie is not good but Harley Quinn in that movie sends it into a different plane as far as pop culture impact goes simply off the costume alone like it was so many people that wore that costume so this year you're probably going to see a lot of roosters from Top Gun Maverick which I think that will be the extent of its impact uh pop culture wise um you're probably gonna see a lot of pearls in the more like uh cinephile community a lot of pearls um what else probably a lot of Spider-Man Spider-Man uh or any of the Marvel properties Spider-Man Thor uh Black Panther and who else? You're going to have a ton. It's going to be a ton of people just wearing. And also, like, of course, you always get the very niche Halloween costumes where someone is dressed as some, you know, small bit character from a, a very big movie, but like it that no one cares about. But for the most part, you can tell how massive something was within pop culture if someone is dressing as as it for for Halloween. And if someone continues to dress like as that character, whatever it is for Halloween's to come, you know, like I said, like you got your, your Doc Browns, your, your Marty McFly's, your Kim Possible's, your She Goes, like those are properties that are now 20 plus years old. Um, but you can still find Halloween costumes for them now and people will immediately recognize who they are. 
And the last metric is kind of the, the DVD sales metric, which is when a cult classic, you know, be it a Big Lebowski or a, a Rocky Horror Picture Show, or maybe not Rocky Horror, but like other cult classics or smaller films. Um, and not every small film is a cult classic, but smaller films or, you know, TV shows or whatever it is kind of find new life within, you know, DVDs or within physical media. And unfortunately, this is a metric that is kind of, you know, fleeting when it comes to how we consider it within the, the, the footprint of something. But for a long time, a lot of things would not uh, you know, when they were on air, they wouldn't necessarily make all that much of a splash. But then when they made it to maybe a streaming platform or you could find the whole, you know, the entire thing of of the, the property via a DVD box set or something at Walmart for like 10 bucks, it kind of grows within popularity. Like one thing that comes to mind is Arrested Development. On Fox, it did, you know, okay. But then when it made it to Netflix and people were able to watch uh, all the seasons up until that point in one go, its pop culture relevance just shot up because people were having an opportunity to see it for the first time. And that kind of comes in tandem with uh, with us being in the age of, of content and the age of just making stuff. A lot of things, a lot of good things tend to get lost. And that is not just with, with film or TV, it's with books, it's with, you know, music, it's with everything. Like we are just in a content overload stage and so many great things get lost. And so when they make it to platforms that are kind of a, you know, free for all, people are, you know, more likely to discover them or to find them. And it was a lot easier to do, um, you know, when you would be buying physical media because you have it in your hand, you can look at it, you can read it, you know, you can really get invested in wanting to explore what this new thing is. And like I said, a lot of things have found new life within, you know, this kind of like DVD sales metric. So to, to wrap things up, Pop culture impact, like I said, is not a one and done, you know, checkbox list that we can just go bloop, bloop, bloop. This is pop culturally impactful. It is very case by case. And sometimes someone may agree that one thing is pop culturally relevant and the other thing is not. And someone may have the complete opposite opinion, as I'm sure with some of the things that I said that weren't pop culturally relevant. I'm sure someone's just like, um, actually they are. I'm already anticipating it. Um, if you want to send me hate mail, I I welcome you to do so. I'd love to have a discussion, except I really don't. But the point is that this whole process, this whole episode, really one I want to boil down to, there are ways that we can identify what is pop culturally relevant and what is not. But I also wanted to point out that sometimes the things that we consider to be pop culturally relevant are relevant for reasons that are kind of arbitrary. Like sometimes it's just as simple as, hey, I heard this song in this, in this, you know, TV show that I really like. And now it's kind of, it's taking over the pop charts or whatever. Like in the case of Running Up That Hill by Kate Bush, obviously it was a great song before Stranger Things, but now that Stranger Things sunk its little, little hooks in it, now it is, you know, you can't escape it. And this song, like I said, is 30 plus years old. It's been around for a long time. It's been covered for a long time. That shows its pop culture rev uh, relevance. Like it is a song that has been able to kind of have its initial, 
you know, life. It had a little resurgence because it's been covered by placebo and, you know, all these other bands. And then it was able to have new life when it was featured in a, a show that just shows that it's got a really long pop culture shelf life pretty much. So this is not a one and done. This is not a, you know, end all be all. There's no totality that, uh, can be applied to any piece of media when it comes to that. But there are a lot of things to consider. Also, like I mentioned at the top of the episode, um, community to community, there are, it, it is insane to me that, and I'm happy that it's, it's, you know, it's happening, but it's insane that so many people are like, you know, Kiki Palmer is a star on the rise and everything. When Kiki Palmer has been like, I have grown up with her. Like she has been around for so, so long. And so it's, it's insane that, you know, obviously with her brilliant performance and Nope, that some people see her as a newcomer and I'm like, no, baby, that's Kiki Palmer. Like she's been around for so, so long. So again, the pop culture relevance of something can change depending on who is doing the consideration of its relevance to one community, one person or one property may be super massive. And then to another community, they could be completely unknown. It's all super like subjective. Nothing in this process is very objective. And even, you know, listening to me, I'm speaking with no real sense of authority. I'm not saying that one thing is this and the other thing is that you're welcome to disagree, but it is something. And I think it was a fun little exercise in how we consider something to be pop culturally relevant and how that process can be applied to other things. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode, Afternooners. If you don't know, the Afternooners is my name for all of us. So if you made it to the end of this episode, congratulations, you're an Afternooner now. If you like this episode, don't forget to rate and review this podcast if you had a good time. It helps out the pod. You get to tell me how you're feeling about the pod and I get that sweet hit of praise and validation that is my life force and it keeps me going. If you want to know where else to find me on the internet, you can find me at the afternoon special on TikTok or Instagram or over on Twitter at hi, I'm Bobby, where I am constantly ranting and raving about the new interview with the vampire series. It's amazing. Of course, we're officially in the spooky month, so I'm in a spooky mood. We will absolutely be talking about vampires in a few weeks, but if you listen to nothing else from me in this episode, watch that show. It's really, really good. And if you're thinking, Bobby, I've got to consider the pop culture impact of every single piece of media that I have ever consumed in my entire life. Bestie, you're brave, but I love the effort. And all that, in that information will be in the description box down below just for you. I hope you enjoyed this week's chat and that you will join me again next week for another pop culture deep dive. Later days, friends. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct, murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale, it's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. Are you a Marvel fan? Matt, you know I am. 
Jeff, I was asking the listener. Oh, okay. Yeah, I thought it seemed like a weird question because, you know, we've been doing a Marvel podcast together for nine years now. No, no, I was trying to grab the attention of all the Marvel fans out there for this ad. Oh. I thought it was weird, too. You should definitely warn us. Good note, Ashley. Well, if you like Marvel movies and TV as much as we do, join us for the Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast. He did it again.